Good morning, everyone. Today we are reading from Romans 5 again, and we are starting at verse 12, reading to the end of the chapter. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because, of all, because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and have the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounding for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God, we ask that you would give us understanding of your word. Good morning. Our, our passage this morning is dense, and there's lots of places where I would love to just nerd out and talk about these things, and there may be something afterwards that you want to come and talk with me about. If you want to come talk about federal headship, or uh, if you want to come talk about the, the various doctrines, I love talking about that, but we're going to be moving pretty quickly through some of these things. There's a, a lot of key themes that come together here as well in our passage this morning, where Paul contemplates the two main enemies of humanity the powers which threaten each and every one of us, sin and death. Ever since the sin of Adam, these powers have dominated the human race, and death has reigned over all. But the hope of believers is not dashed by sin and death. Jesus Christ has conquered both powers, proving that his impact on history is far greater than Adam's. So our passage this morning talks of two Adams who have exerted their influence on human history. 
when God created Adam, the first Adam, He gave him dominion over the earth and commanded him to subdue it and rule over it as its regent. But when Adam sinned in rebellion against God, he alienated himself and all his offspring from God and introduced God's pristine world to a new and terrible ruler. But Jesus, the the true and better Adam, has begun to restore the rule promised to the first, triumphing over sin and death, and has introduced a new law, Romans 8, 2, one that sets us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And so believers are now filled with confidence and hope, for the work of the second Adam is far greater, restoring us as first fruits of the new creation in which the mandate originally given to Adam will ultimately be realized. Now, before we move into the text, I should really point out that Paul's argument here does not work if Adam did not really exist. If Adam was not really the ancestor of us all, and if he did not really rebel against God's command as portrayed in Genesis 3, then none of this makes any sense at all. It becomes an argument from nothing. And so some today have seen the creation narrative of Genesis as entirely figurative or like a parable. And I don't want to completely vilify that line of thinking because the Bible certainly does contain parables and figurative speech, so it's not like someone's just outright terrible if they, if they ask those sorts of questions, but clearly Paul understood Adam to be a historical figure and based many of his teachings upon that fact. In fact, when Adam talks about salvation, he's always relating this to this original Adam. When he talks about uh, gender roles in the family and in, in the church, he's talking about the creation order of Adam and Eve, and these things are foundational to many of the teachings of the New Testament. And so, while we can, I believe, in, in good faith, de- debate the literary style of biblical passages, I can see no coherent case for denying the historicity of Adam, while also maintaining the veracity or the the truthfulness of the Scriptures. So Adam has to be a real guy. Whatever whatever your view uh, of Genesis, there has to be Adam. And if anyone is struggling with this, I'd love to talk to you afterwards, because I love to nerd out on this stuff, and I've looked into it, and, and I don't think there's any reason to think that a literal atom is at odds with what science currently tells us. And so I love that kind of stuff. But first we believe the Bible, and then we figure out how it makes sense. Right? First we believe what the Bible says, and, and then if you're like me and you're nerdy, you like to figure it out afterwards. So a historical atom is crucial to the biblical teaching on salvation, Uh, It is also crucial for a biblical view of a unified humanity. Acts 17.26, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So hence there is no biological or theological basis for racism where one race or ethnic group can claim that they are better than another. We are all children of Adam. And so let's dive into Romans 5, 12 to 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, I'm going to spend half our time this morning talking about this passage. 
this, this verse, and then we'll spend the rest of the time on, on the other dozen or so. This, this passage begins with, therefore, or better yet, for this reason, which is connecting it back to verses 1 to 11. And before this, coming into this, Paul has just emphasized a certain aspect of salvation, which is that God accomplished it decisively before you or I did anything at all. It was while we were morally weak, ungodly enemies of God, Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so the exclusive work of God for salvation will continue to be a theme in our passage this morning, uh, but there's a key point here which builds on an even earlier emphasis, Romans 3, 23, the fact that all have sinned, the fact that death has been the fate of all people since Adam, proves the fact that all have sinned. And so the passage says, sin came into the world through one man. And so this alludes to Genesis 3 and Adam's rebellious act of eating fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil despite God's direct prohibition. This is is saying a lot more, though, than that sin hadn't existed before and that this was the first sin. It's not just saying that Adam's sin was the first sin. Adam's one sinful act released into the world a new baleful power called sin. And so it, it continues, and death through sin, that is death entered the world, then through sin. Sin entered the world through the one man, Adam. Death entered the world through sin. And this refers to the divine punishment for sin that Adam and Eve were warned about in Genesis 2.17. God said, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And so the context here clarifies that the death is both spiritual and physical. In this passage, death and sin are portrayed as twin powers that entered the world when Adam transgressed God's command. So Paul speaks here of sin and death as ruling or reigning, and later of sin enslaving people in chapter 616 and in Romans 623 of the wages that sin extracts from its subjects. And finally, verse 12 says, death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, I, I, I want to front load the sermon here this morning uh, because for a modern audience, our passage has a tendency to have its greatest impact in the wrong place and sort of misfire upon us. Throughout this section, Paul contrasts the terrible impact of Adam's rebellion against the superior work of Christ and His perfect obedience in life and death, which frees us from the tyranny of sin and death unto the reign of God's grace through righteousness leading to eternal life. And so the primary point I want us to see is to boast and rejoice in the true and greater Adam, Jesus Christ. But often, and I believe it's because we have failed sometimes to be students of the Old Testament Scriptures, the impact of this passage weighs more heavily on the work of Adam. You know, as, as we read this, what are we uh, surprised by? What hits us? 
for the original audience, it would have been this amazing work of Christ. But for us, if we're not really familiar with original sin and, and what Adam did, we're, we're reading these things that seem kind of out of place and unfair. And so this is what kind of hits us between the eyes. In, in this passage, we are introduced to original sin, the doctrine that all people are born sinners because of the first sin. And so we read in verse 15 that many died through one man's trespass. In verse 16, that one trespass brought condemnation. Verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned. And 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. And verse 19, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Now, it is not unusual for people to think when they realize that their problem with sin goes back to Adam, that being subject to God's wrath is not fair. How is it fair if Adam sinned and that made me a sinner? How is it fair if Adam sinned and now I'm condemned? But for Paul's audience, it was well established in the Old Testament Scriptures and in Jewish thought this doctrine of original sin. You see, in, in Genesis 1-6, to we see the impact of original sin as Adam's firstborn son was a murderer who killed his own brother in retaliation against God. And only a few chapters later, Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So we're, we're meant to see that while Adam came into this world a neutral party, he had not done anything righteous or evil, but was given a choice to obey God or not. We don't see people like that later on in Genesis. We see some pretty awful stuff uh, coming out of a the people that follow in Adam's footsteps. In fact, the Bible refers to many of them as offspring of the serpent, because it's the devil who is their spiritual father as they follow in wickedness. It quickly becomes apparent that Adam's sin set humanity on a corrupted and catastrophic trajectory. And so while these verses in Romans are the clearest statement on original sin, Paul is, is not developing a new idea here. But he, he is using the devastation Adam's sin wrought as a foil for the powerful work of Jesus Christ. And so as part of this point, Paul doesn't say that human beings are condemned because of their own sin, though such a thought is clearly true. Something different, something deeper and more profound about the origin of human sin is communicated here. All human beings entered the world condemned before God because of Adam's sin. And Paul doesn't defend or apologize for such a notion. He simply asserts it. It's just a commonly held view in his day. He doesn't even really explain it. 
He doesn't tell us exactly how this came to be, and so we are left today with several theories on the logic of how this works out, but no certain reasoning is spelt out here. Now, again, I'd love to nerd out and take time to explain all the theories to you, but I'll practice some self-control, and if you're interested, you can ask me some other time. The Bible, there, there's, I, I think I know how I think this works out, but the Bible doesn't teach it, so I won't. There's, there are other theories uh, of how this the logic of how this works. But Paul doesn't take the time to explain that because he's not introducing a new doctrine. This isn't the main thrust of the teaching that there's an original sin. This was already commonly held. Now he's using that as an example of how sin came in through one man, even though people hadn't done anything of, the, of their own selves yet. They hadn't even been born. So now, in the same way, Christ also, the one man, does something that is saving, justifying, making righteous the many. So he's used Adam here as a foil. So why does God hold us accountable for Adam's transgression? We can't get past asking that. How can God hold us accountable? So come with me on a, on a quick tour through Scripture. When God passed His glory before Moses on the mountain and revealed to him something of God's good character, Exodus 34, 6-7, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and if it ended there, it would be really simple. But it goes on to say, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Uh, that's a hard statement for us to hear. And yet this statement, this last part, is repeated almost verbatim four times in the Old Testament law that the Lord will punish sin to the third and fourth generations. We have some theories about why this is, but ultimately is God's prerogative to do as He wills and as He has announced. And God, who is always a truth teller, has said what He does, and I will not gainsay Him. He, he says this is what He does. But because of this truth that God revealed in His law. Four times He tells Israel, this is how He is. He will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children's children. There developed a proverb, and this is the proverb. The proverb says, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Which is, is a way of saying, the children are experiencing the negative impact of their parents' decisions. So normally, you'd eat sour grapes and your own teeth would feel on edge. They're saying that the fathers ate the sour grapes and it's the children whose teeth is set on edge. So uh, the children are experiencing uh, the fallout, so to speak, of the parents' sin, which we know is true, right? It became popular, though, to say during times of suffering in Israel as they claimed that they were under God's judgment because of the sins of their ancestors. So they were experiencing the judgment of God, and they would say, oh, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge, as to say, our fathers sinned, and so God is angry with us. Our fathers sinned, and so God is causing us to suffer and to die but through his prophets, 
God actually called for an end of this saying because the people's claims with it were incorrect. So Jeremiah 31, 29, 30 says, In those days they shall no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. And Ezekiel 18, 1 to 4, the word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. You see, Israel was not being punished for the sins their father committed. They themselves had sinned and deserved the judgment of God. It's not that the proverb was fundamentally untrue or that God had changed his mind about punishing sin corporately, but that the proverb just wasn't relevant. Israel lost its privilege to use the proverb because they were repeatedly using it out of context. Yes, there were implications for the sins of their fathers, but those implications were no longer relevant because they were sinners themselves. They couldn't sin and be under God's judgment and say, well, mom and dad did bad things. They could, it didn't make sense anymore. Do you know, you know what I'm saying? It was no longer relevant because of the implications of their own individual sins. And so this brings us back to verse 12. Death spread to all men because all sinned. As God taught through his Old Testament prophets, here also Paul teaches that people die because they sin individually and personally. Now, this cannot be separated from the first part of the verse, that sin and death entered into the world through Adam, and therefore people sin and die because of both Adam's sin and their own sin, though the sin of Adam is fundamental. The emphasis which Paul communicates repeatedly and forcefully is that sin and condemnation rightly come to all human beings because of Adam's one sin. Every human is born a sinner and comes into the world condemned and spiritually dead because of Adam's sin. But it is a both-and situation. We can't just point the finger at Adam and say, Oh, Adam, if I were there, I would have done better. Although you were condemned with Adam because of Adam's sin, he was your representative. You were cut from the same cloth, so to speak. We were in solidarity with Adam when he sinned, either figuratively or in in some way literally. You have endorsed Adam's rebellious decision with every thought, word, and deed up until the time you were justified by faith in Christ. So Adam sinned, but we don't get to point fingers. (laughs) There is an original sin by which we are condemned, and we are born sinners, but then it was who we are. Children of Adam, we are like him. No one can say, in the same situation, I would have done better, because we've each had the opportunity and have chosen rebellion against God. Moving on to verse 13 and 14. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet 
death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Adam and Eve had a law. Much like Israel later received a law through Moses, they had one law to live by, don't eat the fruit. But ultimately, it was a command to trust in the goodness of God to honor God as God and to submit to Him as His creatures. But other than that, they did whatever they wanted. From Adam to Moses, there was no new law given for people to transgress. But when people did whatever they wanted, their corrupted desires and inclinations were evil. Their sin was not counted in the same way. It was not a transgression, which is a, a, a to, to disobey a clear command of God, right? There's sin and transgression, and, and the, the diff, trans, all transgression is sin, but not all sin is transgression. A transgression is when you disobey an explicit command. You transgress the law. So, Adam transgressed the law. There was a law given to him, do not eat that particular fruit. But after Adam, there was no law. And yet people still sinned, not because there was a law they were breaking, because they were corrupted in their very nature, that they were, every inclination of their heart was towards evil. They still violated God's will, but without even knowing what God's will was. And verse 12 prevents us from misunderstanding verses 13 and 14, because even without a law, sin still had such a powerful effect on the human race that Paul can say that death reigned between Adam and Moses, the period of human history before the law was given. Death was in charge of every human being. And people had no hope of escaping death because they had all sinned. Again, Paul uses this death of all people as evidence of their sin. Sin must have been there because death was there ruling like a king. They were slaves to death because they had become slaves to sin. Under Adam, humanity suffered under the totalitarian regime of these two powers, sin and death. But thank God, Adam was only a pattern or a type of the one to come, Jesus Christ. Adam illustrates something about Jesus in some way, Adam is a type of who Jesus would be, and that is that how one person can do something that affects countless others. So Adam's trespass had devastating effects, but Jesus' act of love was far greater, overcoming sin and death to bring the grace of God to many. And verse 15, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So there, there's something, church, prior to individual sin something foundational which explains it. Because of Adam's sin, human beings enter the world spiritually dead and physical death will follow shortly. We don't enter into the world in a neutral state. We are dead on arrival, 
because of Adam's sin. This is how Paul can refer to us as children of wrath destined for destruction. We're born this way. But if sin and death are our portion in Adam, even before we sin ourselves, so also the free gift of God's grace in Christ makes us righteous before we have done anything in agreement with it. In order to make this abundantly clear that the salvation which God grants us through Jesus Christ is completely undeserved, Paul repeats the phrase free gift four times in these two verses. It's a free gift. The work of Christ alone reverses the consequences of Adam's sin. He alone triumphs over the powers of sin and death that Adam introduced into the world. And as a result, believers who have received this grace can be certain that sin and death will never triumph over them again. Adam's one trespass resulted in God's judgment for all of his descendants. Because by sinning like their ancestor before them, they brought condemnation upon themselves. But look what Jesus has done. Yes, Adam brought judgment and condemnation to all, but Jesus brought justification as a free gift. We might think it unfair that sin and death came to us through Adam, but the emphasis here is that it's just as unfair that justification came to us through Jesus. God saves us even though we do not deserve it. He saves us by His grace. Justification being made righteous, is a gift from God. For us to receive condemnation would have been fair and just because we are Adam's descendants and we did walk in his path. So the truth is that everyone on the planet is treated fairly except Christians. We are the only ones who don't receive what we deserve. Instead, we receive what Christ deserved. We receive life through faith in Him as a gift from God who otherwise should have condemned us. It continues to emphasize that Christ's work is so much greater than Adam's. It only took one sin for Adam to mess it all up and unleash a torrent of transgressions on the world. Sin starts out small in the beginning, but it wreaks untold devastation on the world as that one sin leads to an unending cascade of sin. There was one sin at that moment, and now the billions of sins that are committed every moment in this world. Cleaning up the mess is a lot harder than making it. But Christ has not only restored what Adam lost, he has gone far beyond. God didn't just start where Adam started. Jesus didn't just come to a garden and have to choose not to eat a fruit. God's work started at the point where Adam's work ended with many sins and many sinners. Jesus did not just get it right where Adam got it wrong. And, and he doesn't just merely grant us a second chance to do better this time. Just as those who were in Adam are condemned with him, so those who belong to Christ are justified, made righteous by his perfect obedience as a free gift of God's grace. Verse 17, for if... 
because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Again, the evidence for the previous statements is presented. The evidence for the universal condemnation of all humanity in Adam's sin is that death reigned over all people. Death is, is the proof that you and I are sinners. When we die and we stay dead, that's proof that we deserve the punishment God gave for sin, which is death. So Paul repeatedly uses this evidence, everyone's dead, everyone who ever lived has died, they're dead, that's proof that they were sinners. And then there's also an evidence uh, in, in here as well, I am jumping ahead of myself. Adam was intended to rule the world, but because of sin, both he and his descendants were alienated from God. Instead of Adam ruling the world, death ruled over him. So this is the evidence for sin. Now, the evidence for the gift of righteousness is the reigning in life that becomes a reality through Jesus Christ. This is the point that Paul has been moving towards all along. Because of Adam, death reigned. Because of Jesus, Christians reign in life. Under Adam, we were slaves. Under the oppressive rule of sin and death, under Jesus, we become the ones who reign. And how do we reign? How do we know that we reign in life? We reign in life by receiving the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. Those who were made righteous through Jesus live righteous lives. There's two evidences shown here, right? There's an evidence of what it means to be in Adam. We know that all humans died in Adam because all humans die. And then we know that we can reign with Christ through the free gift of righteousness, the abundance of God's grace and righteousness. And how do we know? We see Jesus causing us through his work to make us re live righteous lives. So this takes us right back to the thesis statement in Romans 1, 16 and 17, which we have been memorizing together as a church. Uh, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So we're, we're beginning to see now in Romans, as we come through chapter 5, how the righteousness of God is not only revealed from faith for our justification, but it is also revealed for faith or to faith, our sanctification. As the beginning of and end of Romans both talk about bringing about the obedience of faith. As we reign in life free from the tyranny of sin that came through Adam. As we live our lives freed from slavery to sin, we show evidence that we are in Christ and no longer just merely descendants of Adam. We show evidence that we are born again. If our ancestor is just back to Adam, we will die. 
But if we are in Christ, we will live, and we will live the life of righteousness that He has freely granted to us. That righteousness is not earned, but bestowed. Those who are in Christ should live righteous, but because of God's gift, not in order to achieve it. In contrast to death reigning through Adam's transgression, those who are in Christ, it says, will reign in life. So the big theme here is who's ruling and reigning? Is death and sin ruling and reigning in your life? Now, we haven't died yet, but we we know, is sin in charge? Or is Christ in charge? Am I a slave now to righteousness? The theme of what rules and reigns in our life becomes uh, the major key theme that we'll see continue into chapter 6, so I have to let it go and, and come back to it when it comes there. Let's read it, verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. I hope you can see, church, why we handled the Adam part early on. Because now we are meant to read these things and celebrate and rejoice in the goodness of God. Yeah, Adam's trespass led to condemnation for us all, but look, the righteous act of the one man, Jesus, has made us righteous. Contrasted here are condemnation and justification, which are legal verdicts. The condemned are those on whom a sentence of judgment has been passed. The justified are those who have been declared in the right before God. They've been acquitted. If if through Adam's trespass all were condemned, so in the one act of righteousness, namely Christ's obedience unto death, it also is effective, Paul says, for all men. Now, I've got to take a moment to defend against universalism because that is not what is being hinted at here. It's not saying that everyone gets saved. It's not saying that everyone is made righteous. Paul is continuing one of the primary themes of Romans, that the gospel brings life to all sorts of people, especially in the context of Romans, Jews and Gentiles alike, the two people groups that are struggling to get along in Rome. He's once again bringing this up and saying, look, you're all saved in the same manner. And this this gift of Christ was for all men, Jew and Gentile alike. Adam's sin was catastrophic in its effects. All people became sinners due to their ancestry, their common ancestry in Adam. But now all people, regardless of their ethnic background, can be justified by faith in Jesus. In Adam, we were made sinners. It is not that we are sinful because we sin, but rather that we sin because we are sinful. It it comes from who we are by nature. The activity of sin flows out of a sinful nature, a fallen nature, a heart that is out of sync with God. Mankind is, is fallen in the depths of our being And we have a basic disposition towards sin rather than away from it and towards righteousness. We know from elsewhere that Adam's sin fundamentally changed the very nature of humankind. This is why Paul can say, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once 
in which you once walked, following the course of this world. This is just the natural course of this world. To walk in sin and be dead in trespasses and sin, this is the natural course. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Hard words. All mankind, the rest of mankind, we also with them were children of wrath, destined for destruction, walk dead and dying, walking out our nature in trespasses and sins. But if we have a built-in inclination towards sin, which has been inherited from Adam in Christ, we are born again fundamentally changing who we are so that we are able to overcome sin. 1 John 3, 9-10 speaks of the one born of God. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Two camps, two Adams contrasted against each other in this passage. Back and forth, back and forth. In Adam, all became sinners. In Christ, the many become righteous. Whose child are we? Who do we belong to? To who? who who's, who's heir? Whose inheritance will we receive? Adam, who deserves death? Or Christ, who walked in righteousness? Five times, Paul contrasts Adam and Christ. One belongs to either Adam or Christ. Those who are in Adam actually become sinners, and that's all of us. Those who are in Christ really become righteous. Now, there's a final thing here that that plays into more of the the major structure of Romans, talking about the law and the way the law works with sin. And so, at this point, uh, one of Paul's Jewish readers in the church, because there was Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, one of the Jews might have said, yes, all became sinners because of Adam, but God gave us the law of Moses to make us righteous. This was a commonly held view in Paul's day that the law would make people righteous. So you just got to read more of the law. You just got to investigate the law more and try to obey the law, and that will make you righteous. But Paul responds to this type of thinking by saying something that would have been very shocking to many Jews. Verses 20 to 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, there's those two rulers, right? Sin reigning in death. Grace reigning through righteousness. See these evidences attached to the lifestyle. Sin leading to death. Grace leading to righteousness. Before the law was given, there were fewer opportunities to trespass God's expressed commands. 
But when he gave the law, it served to expose just how sinful God's people were, and everyone, but even God's people. When faced with a clear command from God that was intended for their good, they followed in the footsteps of Adam and Eve and chose to disobey the command. They transgressed God's law. And this is what Paul is talking about when he talks about the trespass and sin increasing. God's intention with the law was to increase the gravity and the obviousness of human sins. By laying out what is right and what is wrong, it became very clear to everyone that they were doing what was wrong most of the time. And the intention of this to increase the the obviousness of human sin was so that the power of grace would be seen for what it really is. Grace is shown to be great when we see just how truly sinful we are. This is the, the purpose of God's law. So God has brought about a change of rule. He has started a new kingdom. And in that kingdom, sin no longer reigns and brings death. Now grace reigns, and it brings eternal life. But but don't miss how grace reigns. This brings us back to the main point of Paul's letter. It reigns through righteousness. This other evidence, death as the evidence of sin, righteousness as evidence of God's grace at work within us. Romans is is just an amazing book for helping us to keep separate what is the free gift of God's grace by God's own choice, God's sovereignty, and what our response is to that that is also necessary. That we are living righteously not to earn salvation, but because of salvation. It's the evidence of God's grace at work in us that we are now reigning in righteousness, which means we're no longer enslaved to sin. We're no longer unable. It's not that we don't sin, church, but when we see that we sin and we determine to stop in that area, we don't just keep on being a slave to that. We are not stuck in our sin. So, the the gospel Paul preached, the one true biblical gospel, was not a message that leaves people hopelessly enslaved to sin until Jesus returns. That would not really be good news. No, it was and it is a message that is intended to bring about the obedience of faith in the lives of everyone who embraces it. And it is a message that not only justifies, but it also sanctifies, makes us righteous, helps us to grow in obedience. Adam set humanity on a downward path to destruction by bringing slavery to sin to all who followed him. But Jesus has set all who believe in Him on a path to eternal life by bringing freedom from slavery to sin and transforming all who follow Him so that they will walk in righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful to You for these dense passages in Romans. I love this sort of stuff, and and it makes my brain hurt. So, uh, Lord, I pray that you would give us all grace. Help us by your Spirit to understand your Word, even as we choose to believe it. Lord, we we commit ourselves to your Word, to, to believe what it says, and to obey what it commands.
But Lord, we, we didn't receive any commands explicitly in this passage. We were told of the wonderful work of Christ who causes us to walk in righteousness, whose own obedience applies His righteousness to us. And so, God, even though there are many implications of that and our reciprocation to You, may we revel in, may we rejoice in, may we boast in the mighty work of Christ. For we who did not deserve it, but walked in the footsteps of our sinful ancestors, Lord, we are so grateful that You have brought a a whole new family to us, adopted into the family of God, inheritors of Christ's own reward, destined for Your glory as a free gift of Your grace. God, God, may that love that You have shown us, that abundant grace that You have shown us, transform us and cause sanctification in our lives, we pray, for Your glory. Amen.